Welcome to an installment of the Digital Environmental Governance Interview Series. Support for this work was provided by the Network for the Digital Economy and the Environment, a collaboration of the Yale Center for Industrial Ecology, the Environmental Law Institute, and the Center for Law, Energy, and the Environment at the University of California, Berkeley. The network is supported through funding from the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation. We hope you enjoy the episode. Um, so the main research question in this new project is, is really how processes of digitalization, datification, and automation are changing the political economy and political ecology of conservation. How are digital surveillance and smart technologies changing relations of power and control in and around parks and protected areas? And ultimately, what types of impacts, social, cultural, economic, or ecological, are these technologies having in the context of conservation and on the well-being of, of people and the planet. Welcome. My name is Aidan Smith, and I'm a research fellow at the Center for Law, Energy, and the Environment at the University of California, Berkeley. You're listening to the first interview of a three-part interview series where we'll be exploring the effects of digitalization on environmental governance. I use environmental governance as a lens for understanding the actors involved in environmental decision-making. This lens also brings focus to the ways that environmental problems are framed and acted upon, and whose interests are prioritized and whose are marginalized. Digital approaches have become more and more prevalent as a means of addressing the growing concerns of environmental degradation and climate change. I had the pleasure of speaking with three social scientists who are examining these new modes of digital environmental governance. Through these conversations, key themes emerge that can help guide the public and decision makers as they think about the role of technology in their lives and in their work. So with that, let's dive into the first interview. Welcome. Today I have the distinct pleasure of speaking with Jim Stinson. Jim is a postdoctoral fellow in planetary health and education at both the Dadelay Institute for Global Health Research and the Faculty of Education at York University in Toronto, Ontario. He studied cultural anthropology at the University of Toronto, and his research explores the political ecology of biodiversity conservation and development, indigenous stewardship and planetary health, and emerging digital technologies. He joins us today to discuss a research project he's been leading in Belize. The project undertakes a qualitative and ethnographic examination of the country's spatial monitoring and reporting tool, or SMART for short. This tool became the official monitoring system for terrestrial and marine protected areas in Belize in 2018. Jim and his team explored the social and ecological implications of the SMART tool and the shift it represents for conservation and development in Belize and beyond. His work raises interesting questions about the role of smart sensors, algorithms, and artificial intelligence within environmental governance. Welcome, Jim. I appreciate you taking the time to speak with me today. 
Yeah, thank you very much for the invitation. It's uh, really great and exciting to be able to share a little bit about this project uh, with you and the listeners. Great. Yeah, let's let's dive right in. So, could you explain uh, and provide a broad overview of your research project and the main research questions that are driving it, and maybe a little bit about your methodological approach? Sure. Yeah. So this research really evolved out of earlier work that I had done. Um, in the area of what's sometimes called Nature 2.0, uh, which looks at the role of Web 2.0 or social media in the context of conservation and human-nature uh, relations. So one of the major insights of this earlier work uh, was sort of recognizing the rapid integration of conservation and biodiversity protection efforts in the economy of surveillance capitalism and emerging forms of platform capitalism. So. Uh, this new project is really an attempt to expand on that uh, by looking at ongoing and emerging trends in digitization, datafication, and automation in conservation, specifically by focusing on the role of digital surveillance and smart uh, technologies, which I kind of refer to under this broad term of Nature 3.0. I've kind of developed that term based off of earlier sort of discussions and definitions of Web 3.0, which was defined as an evolution from Web 2.0, which facilitated collaboration between humans uh, via social media and digital apps and so forth, uh, to Web 3.0, which really uses artificial intelligence and machine learning to facilitate collaboration between humans and machines and automation around different processes. Um, so the main research question in this new project is, is really how processes of digitalization, datification, and automation are changing the political economy and political ecology of conservation. How are digital surveillance and smart technologies changing relations of power and control in and around parks and protected areas? And ultimately, what types of impacts, social, cultural, economic, or ecological, are these technologies having in the context of conservation? and on the well-being of, of people and the planet or biodiversity. So in terms of yeah, this specific project, it's in the early phases. And as you mentioned, it's based on an ethnographic examination of the spatial monitoring and reporting tool, which is referred to as SMART. Um, and it's used both in terrestrial and marine protected areas in Belize. We have a team working on this project, uh, including myself, uh, Rebecca Zarger at the University of South Florida, and Lee McLaughlin, who is a PhD candidate at Florida International University. We're primarily using ethnography and participant observation, you know, being on the ground with conservation uh, practitioners and rangers who are using these technologies in parks and protected areas to gather and to analyze data. Um, we're also using in-depth interviews with conservation professionals to, to get more of an in-depth sense of how these technologies are changing the day-to-day -day practice of conservation on the ground and in people's jobs and in surrounding communities. So yeah, that, that's basically what we're trying to do. Again, we're in the early stages of the project. It's kind of the first year we've been working on it. So there's uh, lots of questions and still lots of answers to try to, to get. Great, yeah. Um, thank you for that. Can you explain how this smart tool works in terms of the digital technologies that really undergird it and how does artificial intelligence and big data play a role in in making this tool possible sure yeah 
So Smart is a, ultimately it's a digital platform. It's being developed by a range of conservation organizations, international organizations, including the World Wildlife Fund, Peace Parks Foundation, um, the Wildlife Conservation Society, among a range of other organizations. And this technology really has three broad components to it um, or functions, including data collection, data storage, and data analysis. So in terms of data collection, there is what's called Smart Mobile, which is a digital app that's used on mobile devices by rangers as they patrol in parks and protected areas and come across you know, signs of illegal activities, uh, human encounters, wildlife or biodiversity sightings, and so forth. And this app allows them to input the data into their device uh, for sort of automatic and digitized data collection. This platform also allows for data to be input and collected from a range of other digital sensors, including digital trail cameras, acoustic sensors, drone images, um, satellite imagery. So it's, it has all of these different uh, input capabilities. In terms of data storage, it utilizes what's called smart Smart Connect, which is a cloud-based data storage system, which runs on Amazon Web Service and in theory allows for the real-time input and analysis of ranger data from the field or near real-time. You know, the idea is that rather than rangers having to go on sort of week-long patrols and input the data into computers when they get back, this data is input into their app and it's uh, entered into this cloud-based storage system basically in real time for the most part. Then finally, there's a smart desktop, which is, a, again, it's a desktop application that allows for automated uh, analysis and reporting features based on this uh, data that's being collected. And a relatively new feature of this data analysis component of smart is the use of artificial intelligence and machine learning to take this data that's being collected on information from patrols, combine it with a broader set of information, including geographic information about the parks and surrounding communities, weather patterns, uh, and so forth, to basically predict where the hotspots of illegal activity are going to be in protected areas, and ultimately to even automate ranger patrol routes based on that data. Um, so that's a relatively new feature that's just being uh, developed at the moment. In, it's being developed in partnership with researchers from Harvard University and uh, supported by Microsoft's AI for Earth program. Great. Thank you. Can you put in perspective this smart tool? Because my understanding is it did not originate in Belize, but has a, a longer history. And so I was hoping you could maybe speak to the significance of smart as a tool it's you know it's geographic scope its history what other trends contribute to its growing prominence can you explain to us why we should care about smart sure yeah for sure so i really see smart as being connected to two broad trends within conservation one is increasing digitization of conservation through the use of new monitoring and surveillance technologies and digital platforms to store and analyze this new data that's being collected. The other trend um, is a growing concern about species extinction and related efforts to combat and police the illegal wildlife trade internationally. So other researchers, such as Francis Mass, have noted growing emphasis on 
what's called green policing or conservation policing, both inside and outside protected areas in order to combat the illegal wildlife trade. And, you know, I really see these two trends coming together in the context of, of smart conservation, where we see the adoption of approaches to policing that have become much more common in urban contexts that are now being sort of transferred into the field of conservation. So in the context of urban, urban policing, we've seen the development of what's called platform or predictive policing, which uses a range of digital surveillance technologies and artificial intelligence uh, to basically predict where crime is going to happen in urban areas and to facilitate the efficient sort of prevention of that crime from happening or to stop it as quickly as possible. And yeah, I see that trend in urban policing really being transferred into the conservation context. And we could say that predictive policing is now becoming sort of predictive conservation. Um, and it's oriented again towards using big data and uh, these new digital tools and platforms to predict where illegal activity is going to be happening, such as you know poaching in protected areas, and allowing conservation organizations to respond as efficiently and quickly as possible to prevent that from happening. In terms of the sort of global significance of SMART, SMART was really developed, began to be developed around 2011, and really quickly emerged as a global standard for protected area monitoring and reporting and enforcement. Uh, it's been adopted in over 70 countries and over a thousand protected areas around the world. And a growing number of countries, including Belize, have adopted SMART actually as a standard, um, national standard monitoring tool that's it's used sort of nationwide in all protected areas. So this really represents a significant movement again toward the digitization and datification of conservation monitoring and enforcement. And it's really important that we work, again, to document and analyze the impacts of this process, especially because, you know, we have seen in urban policing contexts, there's been a lot of research, for example, that's shown some of the issues and problems with this, including, you know, biases and algorithms that lead to uh, racial profiling of communities and so forth. So I think, you know, that's one of the things that we need to keep in mind as these approaches get adopted as well in a conservation context. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, and and there's a lot around, you know, like fortress conservation. I, I don't know how that fits into this kind of broader history, but obviously this is an important factor, an important trend towards kind of this this shift in conservation. Now, yeah, while this tool has been, as you said, used in uh, or deployed in over seventy countries and, and a thousand protected areas, as you said, there is something that's very unique about Belize as a case study for land and wildlife conservation. And I've been fascinated by the history of conservation development practice in Belize. And so I was, while this is a global trend, obviously something drew you to Belize. And so I was wondering if you could speak a little bit to the history of. And the motivation for bringing SMART to Belize, you know, why why Belize? Why was this tool brought to Belize to solve what problem? Could you could you speak a little bit to the history of conservation and development in Belize and how SMART maybe is a, a departure from that history? Yeah, that's a great question. And it really is the unique history of conservation in Belize is really one of the things that drew me to Belize as a research site originally. And I think there's a couple of factors related to Belize and conservation and technology that I think make it a really interesting case study. 
Um, so, you know, earlier you mentioned the concept of fortress conservation. When this global kind of movement to create parks and protected areas first uh, started, you know, in the late 1800s, fortress conservation was a dominant model, kind of creating parks and protected areas that had pretty restricted borders and um, the emphasis was on policing and trying to eliminate human activity within those parks and protected areas. But, you know, one of the things that happened in conservation, especially, you know, in the 1990s uh, into the early 2000s, was a significant movement toward what was called community-based conservation, which really was an effort to change the paradigm of conservation towards integrating peoples and communities in conservation, involving them in their management and trying to uh, provide economic and social benefits from protected areas to people in surrounding communities. And Belize was really at the forefront of that movement and in a lot of ways became one of the, I don't know if symbols is the right word, but it became, you know, one of the countries that was really known for that and specifically for promoting ecotourism as a way to provide benefits to communities surrounding protected areas. I think another thing to note about the history of conservation in Belize is that Belize has a pretty expansive system of protected areas. I think over 30 30 to 35% of the, of the country's territory is under protected status. And a lot of those areas were created since the 1990s in that movement towards integrated conservation development and community-based conservation. And um, another unique element of that protected area system is that, again, the government of Belize historically didn't have the capacity to manage a lot of these parks and protected areas that were being created so they delegated the, the management of these areas to a lot of non-governmental organizations and community groups. So in terms of the management of parks and protected areas in Belize, you had the development of this system that was managed by a patchwork of very different organizations with different skills and capacities and approaches and priorities, which I think makes their protected area management system very unique. Yeah, it includes NGOs that have like more of a scientific or educational focus, um, indigenous groups, um, and so forth. So, yeah, there's just a broad range of organizations and priorities within that field. I think what we've seen within the conservation space in Belize and internationally, specifically since about 2010, is a sh the emergence of a shift away from those models of community-based conservation and trying to balance conservation and development and include communities in conservation as partners. Um, again, we could in some ways think about it as a shift back toward that model of fortress conservation in some ways with an increased focus on policing and monitoring and surveillance, specifically to combat the what's become known as the illegal wildlife trade. Illegal wildlife trade has become a very kind of prominent concept and buzzy term within the conservation sphere, a really important issue that's emerged internationally. And in a lot of ways, that's driving this renewed focus on policing within protected areas. So we're seeing this shift and SMART is, is part of that in terms of facilitating the monitoring and policing of the illegal wildlife trade through the standardization of data collection and the collection of, of data that can be used to address that. And I think, you know, in Belize specifically, because you had this patchwork of different organizations all taking a different approach to, to conservation management. They were ultimately collecting information that wasn't being shared necessarily with other international organizations or with levels of government. And I think one of the 
impetuses behind SMART is both to standardize the approach to biodiversity management amongst organizations, but also to facilitate more sort of effective and efficient flow of information in order to kind of harmonize management systems. Great. Yeah. I want to now shift more towards how SMART as a tool is experienced on the ground. And I know you're in the early stages of your your ethnographic work, but could you speak to how SMART has affected the managers and the rangers who actually patrol um, and manage these protected areas? What has their reaction been to this tool? Yeah, that's an, another great question as well. And I think there's there's a couple of different elements to this. Um, I think on one level, you know, SMART is a digital tool that is meant to make the work of conservation more efficient and quicker and easier. And I think in a lot of ways, it does do a good job of doing that. One of the things that both rangers working in the field and protected area managers, you know, working in the office um, to to analyze data and create management plans and so forth, they find is that these tools do make their jobs easier. Previously, rangers working in the field would have had to record observations on pen and paper, bring those observations or logs back to the office, and then input all that data into clunky Excel spreadsheets that would then have to be used and analyzed by their managers. And now rangers can input data in their digital device very easily and quickly. They don't have to write anything down. It's all very icon-based and they're simply tapping icons. So it's very user-friendly. It's very quick. Rangers really like that. Um, And then from the management perspective, that data can be input and accessed uh, almost immediately, either in real time or as soon as the rangers get back to the field station, they can input their device and all the data automatically uploads into in theory, nice organized databases that can be analyzed. You know, from the management perspective, um, SMART allows for the automization of reporting. So like it can take all the data that's been collected on ranger patrols and produce automated reports on the number of patrols, number of illegal activities that were encountered, the amount of fuel that was used, ranger hours that were spent on patrol. All that stuff can be automatically input into a report that can then be sent to funders. So it, it ultimately makes reporting to funders and on the use of resources much easier as well, quicker. So on the flip side of that, you know, SMART is often promoted and thought about as a tool to monitor and manage biodiversity. You know, it's a spatial monitoring and reporting tool. Uh, but one of the things that it does is it, it also makes human activities more visible. And it's possible for us, I think, to think about SMART as a, like a worker management and surveillance tool as well, because SMART ultimately makes the activities of rangers much more visible to their direct supervisors because they're constantly being tracked by GPS while they're being on patrol. Um, their managers can see exactly where they went and what they saw, what they encountered, and so forth. So there's that new visibility that's made possible through SMART. And that mirrors trends in the digitization of of many different types of workplaces and of human activities more generally through social media. Um, But it also makes, in more general terms, the activities of conservation organizations also much more visible and transparent to their funders. So you have these social lines of visibility 
and ultimately, you know, as a form of knowledge that's made available to other social actors, there's control that comes along with that. So um, it provides greater opportunity for funders to potentially control the, the actions and the work of conservation organizations and of conservation managers to be more sort of have more control and oversight over the work of rangers in the field. So you have these dynamics which are emerging, which I think are, are very important. In terms of some of the things and comments that we have heard in the field, you know, I was actually surprised that we didn't hear a lot of pushback from rangers about this sort of new digital tracking of their activities. It was much more of an emphasis on how the technologies had made their lives easier and their jobs easier. And, you know, one of the things that I've thought about in relation to that is um, I think there's a lot of similarities between that type of attitude and just the general attitude of people who use social media in their day-to-day lives. You know, like we all use these digital tools like Facebook and Google. We know they're tracking us, but we agree to that and continue to use them because they provide us with benefits that ultimately make our lives easier in some ways. And I think there's a similar dynamic um, at play with rangers ultimately that they have to make that bargain of being tracked in order to use these tools that make their jobs easier in some senses. And I think we can say the same thing for protected area management organizations more generally. You know, there is this recognition by organizations that that these tools do make their work more visible to funders and that funders really want that in order to have a better sense of how that resources and money is being spent effectively. Um, but ultimately, the benefits of this in some ways are, are more beneficial than, than the costs of it, I suppose. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. And does this tool actually alter or structure the work that a ranger does on their patrol? I imagine you, you mentioned that they will input certain data into the tool. And does that change the focus of what they're looking for when they're doing their patrol? Or yeah, can you, can you speak, say a little bit about how it structures the work itself? In, in new ways? Yeah, for sure. So, you know, I mentioned earlier that there's a diversity of organizations that participate in protected area management and monitoring in Belize. Historically, they all would have had their own approach, uh, things that they would be focusing on, you know, and also within that earlier approach to conservation in the 1990s with the community-based conservation, one of the major points of emphasis at that time was integrating local knowledge and specifically indigenous knowledge into park management plans and monitoring efforts in order to really operationalize that local knowledge and make it useful in a conservation context. And I think one of the things we see with SMART is a a shift away from that emphasis on incorporating local knowledge and really trying to value diverse knowledges and, and worldviews and perspectives and attempts to standardize that through these tools. And we can see that specifically in the promotion of standardized data models. So in Belize, there is an effort to standardize the data model that's being used by all conservation organizations so that all rangers in the field are basically looking at collecting data on exactly the same things. And that ultimately reduces opportunities for local knowledge and diverse perspectives and objectives to really play a key role because the priorities are kind of set within the data model and in some ways being determined by organizations that are higher up, in this case, government. 
And I think there is an opportunity or there is a potential drawback to that. Is there, a, is there a shift more towards calculable, measurable data in general? As, as so often is the case with digital tools, we see this focus on things that can be measured, calculated. Are there yeah, forms of knowledge or information about the protected areas that don't fit that kind of model? I think the thing that we see with the efforts to implement a standardized data model in Belize is really that the emphasis of the data model is specifically on collecting information about illegal activities. So there's this reinforcement that the primary objective of rangers is really to look for and to attempt to intercept and collect data specifically about illegal activities. And I think that that has the effect of, of moving priorities away from other areas, specifically like biodiversity monitoring. And it also has the effect, I think, and this is kind of a broader implication. The implication is that there's a shift in the way that that people and communities around protected areas are seen within this new model. You know, in the past, again, communities were seen as sources of knowledge and being worthy of the benefits of conservation Whereas within this new approach, they really become potential targets of surveillance and seen ultimately as, and primarily as potential threats to be surveilled. For me, that's really the main issue that I have with the data model or concern that I have with the data model is it really does emphasize this policing approach, the identification of of people and communities as threats. and, And that's really a major shift again from the past where communities were seen as potential partners and sources of really important sources of information about the park and partners in its conservation. Yeah, thank you for that. And and yeah, I, I'm very interested in how the relationship between community members to each other and to the parks themselves has shifted with the application of this tool. So how might an interaction in the park between a ranger and you know a community member who's enjoying the park, how does that look or how does that unfold now with this, this new tool? Yeah, so I guess there are some subtle differences. Like in the past, a ranger patrolling a park or protected area might have come across another community member in the park. And there's a couple of things that could have happened. You know, they could speak to them, give them an informal warning, explain the rules of the park, you know, if they weren't aware of it. It would be more of an informal interaction. And it's kind of up for debate in terms of whether that interaction would even be recorded. It might be when they go back to the office, they would write down in their notes that that had taken place. But in some cases, that may not have happened. I think with SMART, there's a couple of important differences. So one is that interaction would be logged in SMART and information about the person would be collected, you know, their name, potentially where they live, what they're doing. There's information that's collected in in SMART digitally, photos that could potentially be taken of a person, you know, if they if they've hunted an animal, photos of what they have on them. And this there have been legal changes in Belize that allow for this digital information to be actually used as evidence in court. So there's this digital collection of information that would take place that hadn't taken place before. 
And I think significantly with SMART is that that information is more available to other organizations. So the SMART database in Belize, for example, is managed by the Wildlife Conservation Society. They have access to the entire database that all of the conservation organizations in Belize are feeding data into. So that means that all of that personal data is ultimately potentially available to that other organization. And, you know, if that information was shared with government, could be available to those organizations and institutions as well. So information about those types of encounters is much more available. And there's a lot of privacy issues that ultimately come into play around that. I think that are really important to think about. And SMART has policing tools and surveillance tools built into it to allow for the profiling of, of social networks. So as rangers collect information about more and more people, the, the database can start making connections between people and identifying certain people as greater threats and so forth. And that's where you get into, again, a lot more issues around the privacy issues around digital surveillance and potential biases and algorithms and issues around the potential incorrect identification of people as threats and the way that they might be treated in the future because of that. So I think with SMART, you just get into a lot of these more issues around digital privacy and uh, surveillance. Yeah, these are obviously questions and concerns that arise when it comes to digitalization. I did want to take a step back. It's my understanding, and you may have mentioned this earlier, that SMART was originally deployed in the African continent. Is that correct? Yeah, I, think I would say it was originally deployed and developed for, for use specifically in, in Africa and Southeast Asia. Mm -hmm. So I would imagine that the impacts of digital environmental monitoring schemes vary across social, political, and cultural contexts and ecological contexts. How do you see the SMART tool being deployed in Belize and a Latin American context? How well does this model of conservation fit within Belize and Latin America? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. And also one of the questions that we're trying to look at through our research as well. Yeah, as I mentioned, SMART was developed by this partnership of organizations specifically to, to help deal with the illegal wildlife trade. And the illegal wildlife trade in places like uh, Southern Africa and, and Southeast Asia, I think, is much more of a focus and issue within the conservation sector, specifically around the poaching of, of large game animals, than it is throughout Latin America. So I think there's a question of how, how much of a fit there is for this tool that was developed specifically within that context within Latin America. I guess one of the other things with the illegal wildlife trade is that there's this perception that the illegal wildlife trade is being driven in some ways by sort of criminal organizations that are generating a lot of revenue, you know, through the poaching of wildlife, the selling of wildlife or parts of wildlife in international markets. And, you know, in Belize, Belize is a much, it's a very relatively small country. There definitely are some issues with the illegal wildlife trade in Belize around particular species like parrots being one. There's the capture of parrots for selling on pet markets, for example. But outside of that, there isn't really great data showing that the illegal wildlife trade is a major issue in Belize. 
And so I think, you know, one of the things that I, we're trying to look at through this research is, is whether this whole shift towards digital surveillance and policing and kind of a move back towards fortress conservation in the context of Belize is maybe a bit of a, not a great fit, I guess, or an inappropriate shift when other approaches might be more, um, more impactful. A lot of the illegal activity that I have seen and heard about in Belize isn't being driven by these international criminal networks, but it's mostly individual people living around protected areas that are hunting for their livelihoods, for food for their families, or fishing to get some food for their families. And, you know, I think there's a possibility that those issues could be addressed more effectively through economic means or development programs or providing alternative livelihoods rather than this emphasis on policing and surveillance that SMART represents. Right. I think in a previous conversation, you made the point that the work of development is very much looking backwards, not in, not in a pejorative sense, but looking back at the root causes, uh, what are the root you know, socioeconomic issues at, at play here. And when we move to a more predictive model or a more you know, predictive policing model, that isn't so much focused on those socioeconomic factors that it shifts the shifts where we're looking, right? When, when we think about these issues. Yeah, for sure. You know, one of the theoretical ways, I don't, and I don't want to get too deep into theory in this, uh, but you know, one of the theoretical concepts that we have been framing this project through is ontopower. And this is a concept that was developed by Brian Masumi to describe kind of a shift in global security and politics in the post 9-11 world, where he describes it as a shift away from biopower or attempts to promote life and well-being to emphasize what he calls ontopower, which is, again, this attempt to eliminate threats to security and to well-being by identifying these threats and risks before they happen and taking preventive action. Bram Boucher is another scholar from the Netherlands who has applied that concept of ontopower in conservation, specifically in the African context, to look at how there have been more sort of militarized and violent approaches to conservation that have been about eliminating threats to biodiversity. You know, in certain countries, in Southern Africa, for example, there are like shoot to kill policies where people that are thought to be poachers in parks can be shot on site. And so there's this this approach to sort of predicting and trying to eliminate threats, particularly in the context of illegal wildlife trade that um, we see going on. And I think, you know, one of the concepts that I've been trying to develop through this work is I refer to as algorithmic ontopower, because it's, it's taking this, again, this attempt to take preventative action and using big data and algorithms ultimately to identify these threats in order to facilitate this predictive or preventative action to protect the environment. And all of that really would not be possible without digital tools and the digitalization of conservation more broadly, right? It's hard for me to imagine, as you say, this more like algorithmic onto power approach without that trend in digitalization. Yeah, I, I think the digitalization is one of the things that's really facilitating the predictive component, right? It really is using that information to predict where threats might materialize and who might be a potential threat and to produce 
predictions of, of where those things might be. If we think about these technologies and what, and what they're doing, you know, you mentioned earlier that there's been a bit of a shift away from looking at the underlying root causes of these things toward using technology to simply address them more quickly. And I, I do think that that's one of the things we see happening. Big data can be used to identify the, the location of potential threats, whether it's a geographic location or a potential person that might be a threat. You can use data to, to identify those things. But I think it's still much harder to use data to figure out what the root causes of these things are. So in some ways, these tools and the, the affordances or the abilities of these new digital tools are in some ways driving conservation and policing towards particular solutions rather than others, because it's really what these technologies can do. Yeah. And, and there's also this theme that I've come across looking at this type of work and other related work on digitalization and environmental governance, which focuses on this idea of real-time, algorithmically driven decision-making. And you you point out that digitalization can direct us away from maybe looking at these root causes, but there's, yeah, there's something about that, the speed at which algorithms work and the ways in which maybe they circumvent messy social and political questions, right? Because the decision-making is happening so instantaneously and everything is sped up in a way. And I'm curious if you have any reflections on, yeah, the element of speed and and, and, uh, this real-time component. Yeah, I think, you know, for me, I think there's a connection between the speed of the technology and the way that it allows for real-time response and preventative action and also, I think, uh, a changing political climate in which efforts to, to think about and to debate the underlying causes of these things have become like much less politically acceptable. There's much more of a political climate to simply label people as enemies or targets and as people that are doing something inappropriate and, and eliminating them or arresting them or punishing them rather than getting into the, all these questions around like, why are they doing it? What are the underlying drivers? What, what systems could we put in place to help, you know, eliminate that? And it's just, the data facilitates just this, allows us to not even have to think about that because we have this data that can allow us to just eliminate these threats before they even take place. And it's a quick, technical, easy solution that totally avoids any of those other questions that gets into more ethical and philosophical issues that are much more complex, whereas this is just about using data to identify targets and and eliminate them. Yeah, and in your research, you also have this term called intimate governance. And as I understand it, that's perhaps what was in place before this more algorithmic mode of governance came about through tools like SMART. Can you say a little bit about what you mean by intimate governance as a as the the mode that existed prior? Yes, for sure. So, intimate government or governance—that's a term that was developed by Arun Agarwal. He's a environmental resource scholar based in, in the U.S. Um, and he did a lot of research on community-based conservation and integrated conservation development. Um, and he uses that term, intimate government, to talk about forms of protectionary management that aim at involving communities directly in the management of protected areas, so community-based governance approaches. 
And the idea behind intimate governance and community-based conservation in general is that you operationalize social connections within a community and kind of lines of visibility and power within a community in order to promote conservation. So you basically make a number of people within a community responsible for conservation. So you make them like community-based rangers or whatever. And those people are embedded in the community and they, you know, use their social relations and their influence in order to educate others and to, to monitor and surveil others within their own community. And it just operations, operationalizes social dynamics within the community itself as a mechanism to promote conservation and, and enforcement. And yeah, so one of the things that we have talked a little bit about in our research is, is a shift kind of away from that model of operationalizing these social ties within a community and these kind of lines of visibility of community members kind of watching what each other are doing towards this new model of what we term algorithmic ontopower, which ultimately, instead of using community members to enforce conservation, you're using these new digital technologies, which in a lot of cases are meant to be invisible and indetectable. And so rather than having community members that are park guards walking around your community and walking around parks, you simply have this diffusion of surveillance devices throughout an environment that have the ability to detect illegal activity in real time. And then conservation organizations can simply respond in real time. And so you have this change in relations of power, surveillance, and control from community members who would be visible symbols of park monitoring and surveillance. And the thought that you might be spotted by a fellow community member would be a deterrent. You have this, this new situation where surveillance becomes much more total. It's not embedded in individual people, it's dispersed throughout an entire environment. So you, you have basically the creation of these new surveillance environments that are monitored by cameras, drones, rangers, satellites that are just, again, monitoring a situation sort of 24-7 in order to not to deter activity, but to detect it as quickly as possible. Yeah, that's helpful. Thank you. That's a helpful explanation of kind of this this paradigm shift that you are seeing in conservation. And it sounds like when conservation is more based on these social pressures within a community and these figures that are visible to community members, it's you maybe don't have to have that same level of coverage. The, the surveillance doesn't have to be as comprehensive because the risk of potentially being caught doing something that is, you know, against the community norms, for example, like that is enough to potentially deter activity. Am I understanding that correctly? Yeah, I, I think one of the ways of thinking about it is in terms of power and control within conservation with um, with more intimate government, you have a situation where these symbols of, again, of monitoring or, or power are visible. And the idea that you would be spotted by them is, is meant to act as a deterrent on illegal action. Whereas with this new system, the idea, and I guess with that previous system, rangers obviously wouldn't be able to speak, to, to know everything that's happening at all times. But the idea that they could potentially be anywhere would prevent people from, from doing illegal activities. And it had to be really visible in order to, 
to be a deterrent. With these new technologies, you have kind of an opposite situation where the technologies themselves are meant to be almost invisible or indetectable. So they're not meant to be a visible deterrent. They're simply meant to be total in their coverage, again, to, to detect activity as quickly as possible. So they're really not meant to be a deterrent at all. They're simply meant to be always collecting data to detect illegal activities and to stop it before it happens. So you have a, kind of a very different system where before with systems of intimate government, it's more really about using surveillance as a deterrent. Whereas with this new system, it's about using surveillance to facilitate real-time intervention. And ultimately, the implication of that is that it's about arresting people, more people, and generating data on that that you could present to funders and so forth. Right, right. Yeah, I, re I really want to emphasize the point that I think sometimes we assume that with the application of digital tools, they merely make existing processes more efficient or effective. But I think what your work points out is that it's not just about more efficient forms of conservation. It's actually fundamentally reshaping what conservation means and, and is. And so I think that's a, a really key point. I want to shift a little bit to a very important question. And we've been talking a lot about power and different actors involved in, in this space. But I really want to hone in on this, this question a bit more of, you know, with, with new data infrastructures and digital tools, inevitably, those tools require new forms of expertise. And that expertise is oftentimes supplied by you know, various, uh, sometimes new actors. And so my question is, you know, does SMART bring in a new constellation of actors into the conservation space or alter the role of existing actors? within that space. And, and so maybe you could speak a little bit to these relationships, dependencies, power dynamics that have formed between actors as a result of SMART's implementation. Yeah, that's, again, a really good question. I guess, firstly, I would say yes. There's definitely a new constellation of actors we see in conservation related to SMART and the proliferation of, of digital tools and technologies in conservation. One of the major changes, I think, that was witnessed in conservation you know, through the 2000s was a real shift towards neoliberal conservation and business-oriented conservation. And you started to see a lot of partnerships between conservation organizations and, and big corporations like Coca-Cola, McDonald's, even oil companies, um, creating these partnerships. And one of the changes we see now within conservation is a lot of tech companies, big tech companies, all becoming involved in conservation, becoming really interested in supporting biodiversity conservation efforts and efforts to address global warming and stop species extinction. Like companies like Microsoft, IBM, Google, they're all investing a lot of money in in tools to support conservation efforts. You know, they're they're funding a lot of kind of new hybrid startup organizations, organizations that are like part tech company, part conservation organization, like these new conservation organizations that are developing artificial intelligence tools. There's a company, for example, called Wildbook. That's a conservation tech company that's developing artificial intelligence to identify individual members of a species. There are key species, for example, that have identifying markers on their body, like zebras, 
that have stripes, giraffes with spots, even whale sharks. Um, they're developing this artificial intelligence tool to identify individual members of that species because they're all unique. And you can use this new tool to basically create species census of exactly like all the zebras in, in Tanzania, for example, and to know exactly how many there are. So we see these new you know, tech companies, these new hybrid conservation tech companies emerging. Um, you also see new academic actors becoming involved in conservation, specifically academics that are involved in the development of digital tech and artificial intelligence. And also in the case of SMART, you know, people that have been involved in the development of predictive policing tools for urban policing are also involved in the development of artificial intelligence tools for SMART to promote predictive conservation. So definitely this changing constellation of actors, really significant changing of political economy in terms of new sources of funding that's becoming available, all these new funding that's becoming available flowing from these tech companies into conservation to promote technical solutions. And I think that's one of the reasons why we do see this significant shift towards emphasizing technology as a tool is simply because that's where a lot of the funding is significant new source of funding in conservation is driving that work. It's also important to think about the implications of that because these organizations in a lot of cases are, are not just investing in conservation altruistically because they want to do good, but ultimately because these tech companies have a financial interest in promoting the digitalization of environments and generating data that can be incorporated into new economies of data surveillance and the monetization of that and so forth. All these data flows can ultimately flow back and can be used to train their, their own artificial intelligence algorithms that are then sold to other actors. So there's those types of financial benefits. Right. I think that point's really important to make because, yeah, this data that's collected, this large amount of data that's collected by tech companies ultimately is valuable to them in many different ways. And I feel like uh, maybe the history of conservation, a lot of times you'd have wealthy philanthropists who wanted to protect a certain species, for example. But now if you can create a business model around it, right, if you can develop a technology around it, then you can actually monetize conservation in a way that maybe was not possible previously. Yeah, there have been cases of that in the case of these new conservation tech companies like Microsoft, for example, they have a funding mechanism called AI for Earth, where they're funding basically st startup companies that are using AI to promote conservation-related issues. But then there's been some recognition that, that there's efforts to then monetize that later on, either by buying the companies or, or you know, monetizing it in different ways. In the case of SMART, you know, SMART's really been developed by conservation organizations as a nonprofit tool. It's a free downloadable tool that's not sold to conservation organizations. Whereas with urban policing, a lot of these predictive policing tools have generated huge revenues by selling them to policing companies. Smart is actually given away free. But I think there's still questions about how that data could be used or monetized later on. And also in the case of Smart, like Amazon Web Service is used for the cloud computing component of it. And you see examples of Amazon advertising their support for smart as a form of green advertising, more or less, for their business. And 
a lot of people have been really critical of Amazon in that sense because they support a lot of other industries that are really horrible for the environment. And then on the other side are, are using their support for smart as a way to, in some ways, greenwash their business. Mm-hmm. Would you say a little bit about the role of the Belizean government in all of this and sort of what are what are they hoping to get out of smart and the data collection aspect of this? Yeah, it's it's, it's interesting. So again, Belize is one of the countries where smart has been adopted nationally. And one of the events that we participated in in Belize when we started this research, the fieldwork component uh, just this last spring was there was a national smart conference that was hosted by the government specifically to promote the development of this national standardized data model that would then feed into not just the the overall sort of database that's run by the Wildlife Conservation Society, but that would also flow to the government into this kind of national real-time dashboard that would allow government management organizations to see exactly how many patrols are being done in parks and protected areas around the country in real time, the number of arrests being recorded, the number of illegal activities that are being found and uh, within protected areas. So there does seem to be a desire on the part of government institutions to definitely take advantage of this new digitalization of conservation in order to create this new national real-time database or dashboard for conservation. And I think part of that is a recognition that this is a growing trend within conservation, that, that funders really are interested in having access to, to these types of data in, in order to support new projects. And also recognition that we've emerged into an economy where data is the primary raw material that has value. And I think that because of that, there's growing struggles by, by funding organizations and government organizations to get access to all this data that's being generated so that, that they can use it to access other sources of funding and to get projects and so forth. I think that's kind of the internal economy of data within conservation is interesting. It's not so much like monetizing the data to sell it to advertisers, as you see within the context of the internet, but it's it's monetizing this conservation data and having access to this data in order to access new pools of conservation funding. Yeah, all these groups want to be the, the locus of this information gathering, but maybe there's some tensions that arise there, given that previously you did have a more dispersed, fragmented model of conservation where perhaps different groups had their own you know, control over their own data. And now through this standardization, it sounds like this is a new sort of battleground of who, who controls the data. And obviously the Belizean government has some interest in that as, as well. Yeah, for sure. And there's definitely issues arising around control over data and concerns by different organizations about having control over their own data and not necessarily wanting other institutions like government institutions to have their data or even other organizations like the Wildlife Conservation Society having access to their, to their data. There are sort of data agreements that are put in place through SMART in order to protect that data. But, you know, obviously any agreement like that relies on actors conforming to the to those agreements and operating according to what those agreements say that they should. And that doesn't always happen. There is concern, for example, around other organizations being able to access the data and like what happens if there's corruption within those organizations 
And this real-time conservation data could be shared with people that are doing illegal activity, you know, in the government sphere, the non-government sphere, or private actors or whatever. So there is a lot of issues emerging around data privacy, data security, um, for sure. And in terms of the actual expertise that's required to use this tool, can you speak to some of the effects that this tool has had on rangers and and in terms of the training that they're required to do and just how does it how does it affect the labor of all this yes really good question um you know from a ranger perspective there is training that obviously goes into it but i think the ability to use smart by a ranger is not all that different from the ability to use a smartphone like it's very much a similar type of thing as using an app on a smartphone so it is pretty user-friendly from that side of things i think the biggest change is is actually within the kind of realm of conservation management professionals is you see now like conservation organizations are having to hire and train data scientists basically like data specialists who are able to manage these emerging databases and to, to use kind of the more technical and analytical aspects of SMART to, to analyze the data, to look at trends in the data, to produce management plans based on the data. I think there's a whole new realm of, of conservation management, natural resource management training that's specifically going to focus on data management that is going to have to take place. And like, I think a lot of organizations in Belize are kind of struggling or to find people to fill those roles that do have both park and protected area management experience, but also expertise in database management and big data and data analysis and those kind of more computer skills. There's a real need for training in those areas. And the other issue with SMART too is that SMART is a system that's being continually updated over time. It's on its seventh iteration now. Every time SMART's updated, each of these different organizations that's using it have to be retrained again on how to use it. So there's this constant need for retraining because of these digital tools that does create a dependence of each of these organizations on ultimately the, the people that are going to be training them on how to use it. And that's, that's ultimately the organizations that are part of the SMART partnership that are developing the tool. In Belize, it's the Wildlife Conservation Society that's the lead conservation partner that does all the training. But it does mean that there's this constant cycle of training and retraining that has to take place in order to be able to use the latest version of the tool as it's continually up- upgraded and updated. Mm-hmm. What is the appeal of SMART for foundations? What, what, is, what is the motivation there, do you feel, in terms of their involvement and promotion of this tool? Yeah, I think there's a really clear appeal. I think one of the things that funding organizations want to to see is that the, the money that they're investing in conservation, whether it's Belize or any other country, they want to know how their money is being spent and whether it's being used efficiently and effectively. And I think SMART makes the work of conservation organizations very visible. And that's one of the really useful things that SMART does for organizations. It allows them to visualize the work that they do and produce these really cool and technical visualizations of all the patrols they've done, the amount of fuel that they've used, and, and the cost of that, the, the hours rangers have spent on patrol, the number of people that they've encountered in, in protected areas. So it allows them to really visualize that information for funders in a really um, clear way. 
And I think for funders, it's, it's appealing to be able to see that, to know like, okay, I can see really clearly exactly where these organizations are patrolling and where illegal activity is happening. And it just makes all this much more visible and transparent. Yeah. So it sounds like while, while you've expressed concerns or words of caution around the deployment of this tool and how it's ultimately implemented, there's clearly some advantages that it provides both to funders, as you said, it makes the work of rangers and managers more efficient. Um, as we wrap up the conversation, I do want to turn to the question of, you know, what do you hope will come out of your research? What are the conclusions that you are beginning to reach? Or, you know, do you see ways of integrating digital technologies into conservation practice uh, in ways that are just and equitable and, and, and thoughtful? Yeah, I think, you know, one of the main things that we're trying to do through this work is really to get a, a first sense of, of what's working and what's not working for SMART. What are the benefits of the technology for protected area managers? What are some of the potential drawbacks? You know, tr- training and retraining, I mentioned dependence on, on training organizations. Um, what are some of the drawbacks? What are some of the potential threats, like longer term threats around data privacy, data security, issues around identification of people living around protected areas as threats. All those things are are what we're trying to look at ultimately to promote a more kind of effective and just form of conservation. You know, we're not out to say like smarts a horrible tool. No no one should be nobody should be moving towards digital technologies and conservation. I think clearly like digital tech like smart can have really important uses. But I think as we were saying, like the question is how to use these things in an effective way, an efficient way, but ultimately also a just way and a secure way for people and communities. And one of the concerning trends in conservation for me is this movement towards standardization. You know, as a, as a cultural anthropologist, I'm kind of trained to recognize the value in diversity and cultural diversity and approaches, perspectives of the world and worldviews. And SMART is in some ways not in line with that. And I think a really interesting question is how can we use these digital tools and maybe make them more compatible to include, again, different types of knowledge systems or different worldviews. You know, I do a lot of work in, in Belize also with indigenous mind communities that are working to assert more control over their land and territories and to monitor and manage their own indigenous territories. And there's interest by those organizations to use some of these digital tools to help them to do that. And I think one of the things that we hope comes out of this work is, is some insights into how that could be done. How can different organizations use these tools in really good ways to promote environmentally sustainable and socially just futures for people on the planet? I think it's definitely possible. That's really what we're, why we're doing this work and, and what we hope comes out of it. That's amazing. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, do you... Have any other work on the horizon that you would like to highlight? Any other collaborations? Or is this your primary focus at this point in time? Um, yeah, so a, a lot of the research I'm doing right now is, is focused on uh, planetary health education at York University. So this is one of the projects I'm working on. I'm also working on a number of other collaborative projects that are focused on promoting education and awareness around planetary health, specifically with youth, both Indigenous youth and non-Indigenous youth. So we have partnerships with Indigenous 
communities and organizations, both in Canada and also in Belize, um, where we're, yeah, we're trying to promote awareness about, about climate change and about the links between environmental health and human health. We have projects trying to use digital tools and uh, platforms in order to engage youth in these issues around climate change. Like we're doing a digital film production with youth, both in Canada and Belize and other countries as well. So yeah, we, we have a lot of projects on the go. They're all focused on, again, trying to promote healthy people and healthy environments around the world and, and also trying to think about ways to use digital technologies to do that. Yeah, sounds like you're very busy. Well, I want to thank you, Jim. You know, you've been so incredibly generous with your, your time and, and thank you for sharing your research with us today. It's, you know, it's a fascinating look at how digital technologies are fundamentally transforming how we approach conservation and environmental governance more broadly. And so I want to you know, wish you good luck with your research and, and thank you again for, for talking to us. Yeah, thank you for much, so much for the, uh, for the opportunity to talk to you guys and to yeah, share a little bit about what we're doing.